Well, good morning. I'm Steve Noblet, and I'm the CEO for Christian Community Health Fellowship, or CCHF. For those of you who may not be familiar with CCHF, we are a nationwide community of Christian health professionals who are committed to living out the gospel through health care among those who are poor or marginalized. Uh, and so it's my privilege this morning to, uh, to talk about integrating domestic health care and international missions. Um, and so I'm hopeful to leave a little bit of time at the end for some Q&A and uh, we can discuss some of these things. So thank you for joining us and let's get started. I want to start by just saying that I think it's important for us to begin with a shift in language. So uh, we hear a lot of people talk about uh, domestic versus international missions. Uh, and, and a question I have is, does God use that kind of language? What do we mean by integrating domestic and international work? Well, to integrate something means to make two things or multiple things into one. An integer is a number that can't be divided. And, uh, and when we think about what God's global mission is um, and how God looks at the earth and his mission towards us, my Bible tells me in Psalms 24 that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so what that means is that the entire earth, as far as God is concerned, is domestic. Uh, he's no more American than he is Dari or Boda or Haitian. Um, and frankly, as far as he's concerned, the least reached people group on the earth is no less his than the most Christianized county in America, or uh, which is probably Holland, Michigan, I think, maybe. So, uh, so when we talk about language, I, I get that domestic and international might be strategically helpful terms, but the truth is that when we think and talk about missions, we really need to understand that God has one global mission, and if it's on the globe, it's part of that global mission, and America's certainly there. So my goals for this session, um, if, if hopefully in the next 40 minutes or so I can get through this, uh, first I want to talk about why America is a strategically important mission field, and then secondly, what missional medicine means in a domestic context, like what does that look like? Uh, and then we want to talk about a few examples of global missions in the U.S., and then uh, some U.S.-based missions and how they're integrating effective international efforts as part of their uh, as part of their missional work. And then uh, hopefully we'll get a little bit of time to talk about how you could respond. So let's get started here. So um, number one, you are here. There's a reason that you were born and live in America. Paul, uh, when he went to Athens, spoke and uh, and in his sermon there in Acts chapter 17, we find this very significant phrase that from one man God made all people and determined the times and places where each one should live so that. In other words, there's a reason why you live where you live, why you were born where you were born. It's so that people might seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, for in him we live and move and have our being. Listen, you're one of those people. Uh, you're one of those people that God wanted to reach out and find. You were born here because this was probably the best place on the planet and the best time in history for you to find Jesus. Uh, and perhaps another, another reason might be so that you could be trained and equipped to go to other places and to reach other people. But even if that's the case, that does not preempt a purpose and an opportunity and frankly, a responsibility that we have to live and act missionally here and now. Um, one of all of our favorite verses <laughs> is uh, Acts 1.8, that, that we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us and be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, and so the overlooked word is for many of us in that, in that passage, as we get excited about Jerusalem and the uttermost parts of the earth, is the connector. It doesn't say Jerusalem or the uttermost parts of the earth or Jerusalem and then the uttermost parts of the earth, but it says Jerusalem and. And so for us to fully express God's heart for the world in our generation, 
is to be fully committed to God's global missions and to not put our lives on hold until we can get somewhere else, but to live it out here and now. So, uh, so let's ask this question. Isn't America already reached? Aren't we a reached nation? Certainly, you can't drive down the street without billboards. That you know, I mean, Look at where the Global Missions Health Conference is, is held. It's held in this gigantic megachurch where there's an, almost an exit off the interstate just to get there. So isn't the job done? I mean, 300 years ago, didn't John Wesley come over here and George Whitfield and, uh, and Jonathan Edwards? I mean, like we had the Great Awakening and America became a Christian nation, right? Well, here's the truth. America is much less Christian now than it's been probably in the past at least 200 years. Uh, and most of that's happened in the last generation. In one generation, we have nearly lost our country. And I'm not making a political statement about anything. It's not political. It's spiritual. America's in a great spiritual decline. And I want you to think about at the end of the first century of the early church, what was the most reached areas of the world? Syria, Turkey, Jerusalem, India, Egypt. These were not only reached areas, but they were mission-sending centers. Um, and so where are they? what are they now? Well, they're the 1040 window. And we're trying to get back and reach them again because we lost those. Well, we've, we're losing America. America is not nearly the reached country it was 200 years ago, we are in rapid decline here in the United States. In fact, uh, church studies show that uh, in spite of a resurgence in church planting in the United States recently, for every new church that's planted, four existing churches are closing. We are losing 3,000 churches a year in the United States, and conservative estimates are that 1.2 million Fewer people in America claim to be Christians every year, and it's been that way for over 12 years now. Uh, this quote by the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership and Development is a sobering quote, that the United States now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. In other words, the U.S. is becoming an ever-increasing unreached people group. So there's a great need in the United States. Um, so let's talk about why medical missions is an effective strategy in reaching America as part of God's global mission. Because to be honest with you, the church has done a pretty poor job of, of reaching our nation. It's still God's primary thing, primary uh, means and primary strategy. And I love the church, but the church has become more about self about self survival and than it has been about reaching our communities and then praise God I see that changing some but medical missions is a big way that we can help the church recover its mission in our nation so let's start with this that there is a great need in our nation for medical missions um, there's a real need for medical care and especially primary care in areas where people are the most receptive. So in this map, this shows uh, uh, every state in America that has medically underserved areas. So on this map, Indiana is the state with the fewest counties that have medically underserved areas. And, that, and still between 20 and 40% of the counties in Indiana are medically underserved. Uh, in fact, the, the darker the colors here, I don't know if you can see the, uh, the legend that goes with this. It's sort of a copy of a copy here, but uh, the darker colors, California, Texas, my state of Tennessee, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, all those areas there, Pennsylvania, these are, these are not areas that you think of as being sort of backwards areas necessarily, but over 80%, well over 80% of the counties in those states are, uh, are predominantly medically underserved areas. So uh, just so that you know, medically underserved is not just sort of a random term that means that we think that it, there needs to be more health care. It's actually a technical term that's used by the Department of Health and Human Services. It refers to very, very specific geography 
uh, down to street addresses. And, uh, and it's defined by four things, that there are too many poor people, too many old people, that they have an infant mortality rate in that, in that area that is, uh, that is similar to a third world uh, infant mortality rate. And that's not an exaggeration. That's the truth. And that there's a primary care provider shortage, not enough doctors in those areas. And 90 million people, over 90 million people in the United States live in a medically underserved area. And it's not just medical that's underserved, but dental. This is a map of, uh, of, of uh, dental shortage areas uh, in the United States from 2013. It's a little bit older map, but it's uh, it's not gotten better, uh, to be honest with you. And um, uh, and, ver and in most of the country, somewhere between 10 and 25 percent of the people uh, that live in those in those states uh, have a, a difficult time finding a dentist and certainly finding one that they can afford. Uh, and it's not just medical and dental, but it's also behavioral health. And so, again, if there's color on this map, it's a bad thing. Um, uh, things that you should know is that one in three people in America live in an area where there's a significant shortage of mental health professionals. And among the poor, 25% uh, of the people, more than 25% of the people who are diagnosed with mental health disorders. Now, these are people diagnosed with mental health disorders are unable to receive care because of the shortage. So there's a huge open uh, need uh, for medical, for dental, and for behavioral health. I say all the time that people live in one of two communities in the United States. They either live in a community where doctors are competing with doctors for patients, or they're living in a community where patients are competing with patients for doctors. We should be targeting that second area. So where we practice, where we choose to live, and where we choose to focus our efforts uh, need to be reflective of those things. Um, so here's another thing, Gallup uh, poll. Uh, who do people trust is, a, is a, uh, a poll that they put out every year. They have for, I think, 25 years or more. And it, never, it almost never changes. The number one spot never changes. Number two and three sometimes do a little bit. But in an age where nobody trusts anybody, the good news is that people still trust healthcare professionals. Every year, the number one uh, most trusted person in a person's life is their nurse. Pharmacists and physicians usually swap back and forth two and three, depending on the year. Usually there's a primary care teacher, or a, not a primary care, but a, uh, an elementary school teacher, a primary school teacher, uh, comes in around number four. And then the dentist makes it in the top five, which always confuses me because my dentist always tells me it's never going to hurt, and it always does, and you know they betray my trust every time, and yet they're still so trusted. But when it comes to things like clergy, do people trust their pastors? And the truth is that pastors are on the list, but they're pretty far down the list, usually one before or one after police. And to kind of give you an idea, it's usually the top 20 professions that are trusted, and when you get down to the bottom, uh, like 18, 19, and 20, usually you find car salesmen and senators down there. So, um, so the fact that people have this inbuilt trust for healthcare professionals gives us an opportunity that we don't have. And so then the question is, well, that's great that they trust us, but did they trust us to talk about spiritual issues with them? With them? So there's a number of great studies out there. There's actually thousands of great studies that are less than 15 years old because the this whole field of understanding religiosity and spirituality and health is exploding in, in uh, medical schools across the country. It used to be that there were a few medical schools that offered a course in it, and now most medical schools have a department in it. Um, and so there's all these studies that have, that have been going on. I'm going to just mention a few. There's one from Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health. It's about 12 years old. We're going to look at that. Uh, there's a re more recent one from Duke Medical School by Harold uh, Koenig uh, that is definitely worth you know looking into. And then a number of surveys that have been done uh, across the United States uh, in CCHF clinics <clears throat> over the years. And, and I also want to recommend, too, if you get a chance, look up Bob Mason. 
Uh, Bob Mason does workshops at GMHC every year, and he does workshops at CCHF every year. And if you go to either of those websites and look up his workshops, I want to recommend one that he does. All of his workshops are very good, but the one that he does on um, the ethics of spiritual care in a patient-provider relationship is phenomenal. It is so encouraging. He goes through study after study after study after study to show that not only is it responsible, but it's irresponsible not to provide spiritual care, knowing what uh, the impact is. So let's just take a quick look at a couple of you know summary things here. Um, so in the Bloomberg School of Public Health, Johns Hopkins study, again, this isn't Liberty University, this isn't Loma Linda, it's not a Christian uh, organization or institution, but uh, Johns Hopkins did this study. The N was huge. It was in the tens of thousands of people that they surveyed and interviewed. Uh, just under 50% of those people identified themselves as spiritual, and yet over 90% of the people that were interviewed said that they believe that spiritual health is as important as physical health and that the two are related. In Koenig's study at Duke Medical, over 80% said that it's appropriate for their provider to discuss spiritual health with them and that they wish they would. And uh, in the Koenig study, and uh, as well as just being confirmed by more informal surveys, but some of them uh, pretty extensive surveys that we've done around CCHF, greater than 90% of our patients welcome their provider to pray for them. In fact, uh, in the, one of the surveys that we did in, uh, at a big clinic in Memphis, out of 90,000 or so patient encounters, um, I think it was less than, it was somewhere around 15 people when asked, may I pray for you? Only about 15 people out of 90,000 said, I'm uncomfortable with that. Please don't. So uh, we've had that confirmed in Albany, New York, in Philadelphia, in New York City, in Buffalo, New York, in Chicago, in Portland, Oregon, in Seattle, and in uh, Los Angeles. So this is not just a, a Bible Belt phenomenon here. People have a recognized spiritual need, and they trust their providers to talk to them. So uh, we have a need in America. Missions, uh, medical missions is a recognized area of need. You guys have a bridge of trust that provides you opportunities that other people don't have to reach people they can't. And not least of all, there's a great spiritual hunger in the United States. I, I'd love to spend a lot of time on this right here, but I, I can't do it. But I just want to say that I really do believe uh, that what's happened in this year has really exposed a deep spiritual rightness for, I don't want to call it revival, I don't like the word revival very much, but I love the idea of awakening, a great awakening. Maybe, maybe the greater, a greater awakening than we had back in the 1700s and the greatest awakening we may have ever had in history. And you and I live in that time, if we will understand this time, we, we see all of the chaos, we see a curtain of chaos um, that has been exposed because of the coronavirus, because of the social injustice issues. We've seen protests in all of these cities, and we can, we can have opinions about whether we like the protest or don't like the protest, or whether Black Lives Matter movement is a good thing or a bad thing. We can have opinions about all of those things, and frankly, nobody cares about our opinion. What we need to do is look through those curtains. Instead of criticizing the curtain, let's look through them and see what's behind it. Listen to what's happening. Creation is groaning. And what they're groaning for is justice. They're groaning for life. They're groaning for security. They're groaning for meaning and dignity and community and things that they're being stripped of because all of this year, what's happened is not that those things have been destroyed, but those things have been exposed for the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses and the inherent uh, corruption that there has been in all of those things. We have been leaning on broken crutches for all of for our entire lives, and people are coming to realize that now. The institutions have failed us, um, and and people people want better. They want the kingdom of God is what they want. The things that they're they're groaning for hope, 
And honestly, we we can we have the gospel of the kingdom of God, and the things that they desire are products of that kingdom. And if we can get out of ourselves and get away from the insecurities that we feel about having those things stripped, and if 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 if, we, if the church would stop groaning about the same things the world is groaning about, and being divided about the same things the world is divided about. And if we could unite around the mission that God has given us to be immersed in the brokenness of the world and anchored in the hope of the kingdom, we could see a great awakening, not just in our nation, but I believe globally. And so I really believe that this is a critical and important time. So let's take a look at medical missions and what medical missions even means. So I think one of the problems that we have with most of the uh, the way most people think about domestic missions is that we we just adopt the paradigms of healthcare delivery that we see and then sprinkle a little spirituality on it. We think doing medical mission in the United States is just doing medicine, except that we pray for our patients. And if you're doing that, please don't stop. Like, I want you to pray for your patients. It's a really good thing to do. But there is a difference between being a Christian health professional and practicing missional medicine. Uh, if we really are part of God's global mission, then we should think about what's happening here in the U.S. the same way that we would think about missional medicine anywhere else in the world. The principles and attributes should be the same. So what are those principles and attributes of missional medicine? Well, I have a list of six things that I think are essential. Um, and how we walk those out, how you walk those out, is open to some latitude, but uh, I think that if we are really using healthcare as a platform to express the kingdom of God, then these six things should be values that are always running in the back of our mind and for which we're always looking for expression. And the first one is incarnational. We could do an entire session on what it means to be incarnational. Uh, Christ left his home in heaven and he took on the form of human flesh and became a servant, and he lived among us. He immersed himself. He tabernacled among us. He uh, he ate with people. He lived with people. He walked with people. He was in their homes. He was he was relatable. He was present. And so, in the same way, that incarnational approach is critical for us. We should be living brochures for the kingdom of God. Uh, not tucked away in some, you know, hospital building or tucked away in some suburban home. But we need to be working and living and immersed uh, in the communities that we're and with the communities that we're serving. So that you wouldn't, you could, you can't reach Central Asia by living in America. Uh, and in the same way, you're not going to reach the neighborhood of need that's, you know, halfway across town by living and staying where you are. And so there's different ways people are walking this out. But at the very least, we should be located and accessible in and to the communities. Uh, when we talk about living out the gospel through healthcare among those who are poor, uh, as sort of the CCHF tagline, the word among is really important to us. Living out the gospel through healthcare among those who are poor. So incarnational is a principle of medical missions that should be applied domestically as well as overseas. Uh, Cross-cultural is another one of those important attributes. So the Great Commission is essentially cross-cultural. Jesus talking to a group of uneducated Galilean fishermen from a rural community and tells them, I want you to take the gospel and make disciples of every people group, of every ethnos. And so it was, I don't know what went through their minds at that time, but it might have been, must have been almost overwhelming for them. Um, but what does it mean to minister cross-culturally? Well, again, at the very least, it means learning the language. So if I were going to go to Nepal or if I were going to go to Ethiopia, I would have to go through the very painful and uncomfortable process of language and learning language. And it's not just language. It's not just learning what the, you know, what the Nepalese word for whatever is, uh, but it's, it's learning how they process, how they communicate, how they think. And, and please don't think that because you live in America, and, uh, and you've got, you know, that, that across town or across, uh, or frankly, across the street, 
the people are using the English, the English language the same way you do. My wife and I relocated. We've been ministering into a, an under-resourced community for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years now. But, um, but we moved into that community about six years ago, five or six years ago. And I can promise you that while my neighbors may speak English, they use language in a very, very different way than we do. And it's my responsibility to learn their culture and their language. Part of being cross-cultural is, is releasing myself from the bondage to comfort and the bondage to the familiar and to step into the unfamiliar and often uncomfortable world of the people that God's called me to love and to serve. And so that's an essential aspect of, of what it means to be a medical missionary. Um, medical missions is about making disciples, but not just making disciples. We want to make disciples that make disciples. And so we talk about church planting movements and, and disciple-making movements and all those kinds of things. What we're really talking about is replication. And so that should be an aspect or an attribute to what we are doing uh, in the U.S. or anywhere else. And so certainly that means that we want to, uh, the disciples that we make of our patients, we want to empower them to reach their communities for Christ and to introduce others to him. But we need to be doing that with our staff. We need to be doing that with our peers. And we need to be doing it with students. We need to be bringing up the next generation or even building models that, uh, that are easily replicated and modified to fit other communities. And, and we need to be launching things in that way. So replication, training, all of that is a big part of what it means to be missionally, uh, missional in medicine. And then, of course, our focus has to be towards those who are poor and marginalized. Jesus began his ministry by saying, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and, and release to the captives and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, you know, how many times did Jesus command us and the prophets in the Old Testament command us and the apostles in the New, in the New Testament command the church to remember the poor, to care for the, the widows and the orphans, to welcome the strangers, to practice hospitality, which literally is a word that doesn't mean invite people over for dinner. It means open your home to, total, to people who are total strangers. And so this is a focus of the church. And when the church has been at the healthiest, it's when it's done this. And when the church has been, when it's, when it's become sort of myopic and incestuous, it's when it's not done this well. And so um, we need, this should be a big part of it. I'm, and I'm not saying exclusively to the poor. Certainly we, Jesus ministered to all people, but Jesus ministered his focus was towards the poor and the marginalized, and ours should be too. Uh, and then the next to the last thing is that our focus is on systemic redemption as well as individual redemption. We have a gospel of the kingdom, and one of the reasons that I believe the church has lost America in a generation is that we traded the gospel of the kingdom for a gospel of individual salvation. Um, and I don't want to get on a soapbox too much here, but like you cannot have the gospel of the kingdom without individual salvation as an essential part of it. But individual salvation is not just it. Certainly, we want to see people reconciled in their relationship with God. But God is also interested in the systems that are built. He's not just interested in you being a good Christian, but you being a good, raising a Christian family, uh, being a good neighbor having an influence in the spheres of influence that God has where God has placed you. And so there's a prophetic role that we have to advocate for the qualities and the attributes of the kingdom of God in the communities that we're part of. And that's the medical community. So we need to call broken what's broken, and we need to, and we need to advocate for the kingdom of God in the medical community, in the church, which is far from mature, um, in the communities that we're from, and in the communities that we're serving. And so those are the things that we need to be a part of as well. Uh, and then finally, we need to recognize that we, we can't allow ourselves to become myopic and think that this is just about what God is doing through me. But we need to recognize again that God is part of a global mission. God, is, God has made us part of his global mission, and his heart is on the whole earth. 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and that we are playing an important part where we are, but we also need to be sowing in to the bigger thing that God has done. So uh, to be part of a global movement. So um, so how are these things being walked out? Let, let's, let's take a look at a few um, uh, sort of case studies. And I want to start with this, with this one here. Janelle Getches was a... Um, uh, as a young woman, was a doctor. She did a residency and her training in Indiana, and I think in Muncie, Indiana, if I, if I remember right, or Vincennes, I can't remember. But anyway, small town in Indiana, and she and her husband, who her husband was an ordained minister, and they wanted to go to Pakistan as missionaries uh, back in the 70s. And uh, as part of all of that, they had to go to Washington, D.C. There was no internet then, um, and, uh, and so they had to go to Washington, D.C. to work out visa issues. And while they were there, they, uh, two things happened. One is that they saw homeless people everywhere, and it broke Janelle's heart. And she began talking to a number of them and, and recognizing how many of them were really sick and had such needs. And she was overwhelmed with that. She hadn't seen that uh, from where she had, you know, from, uh, as she was growing up. And then the second thing is that they met a group of Christians that had, um, that were really involved in this one area, this one neighborhood on Columbia Road or around Columbia Road uh, in Washington, D.C., which is now very gentrified. But back then, in the 70s and early 80s, it was, uh, it was a terribly depressed area. And, um, and so when they came back from uh, their trip to Washington, they prayed about it and they said, hey, we need to move to D.C. That's where we need to be. And so they moved their family to D.C. and they joined with this group of Christians at Church of the Savior there. And uh, and she took a job in an ER so that she could make a little money. And it, after her shifts, she and some of these Christians or she sometimes and her, her husband would get in a station wagon and they'd go visit homeless people under bridges and in parks. Uh, and she would look to see how she could provide medical treatment for them and pray with them and share Christ with them. And so... Um, that went on. There was a, um, she started a, a clinic called Columbia Road Health Services. There's a picture of it on this slide, and, um, uh, but still worked in the ER. And one night, uh, the, a, a man came in that she had recognized from the parks that she had seen before, and he was sick. Um, he was soaking wet. It was the middle of winter. She got him some dry clothes. She got him some food. She treated him, and then she ordered him to be admitted to the hospital overnight. And word comes down from the offices that says, nope, he's not sick enough to be admitted, and we're not going to let him take up a hospital bed. And against her wishes, they discharged him at 7.30 at night in the middle of winter. And the next morning, they found him frozen to death in a, bu in a bus stop. And, um, and it's because you can't get into a shelter at 7.30 at night in the middle of winter. If you're going to get into a shelter... You got to get there at four o'clock in the afternoon or five o'clock in the afternoon at the latest, but you know, they're full by then. And so he froze to death and it broke again, broke Janelle's heart. And so uh, across the street from Columbia Road Health Services is a four story building. There's a picture of that here on this slide. And uh, they leased out the bottom two floors and uh, raised some money and they started a uh, it's still there. They called it Christ House, and they started a, uh, a semi-residential treatment area for uh, street people who uh, were too sick to be on the street, but not sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, and they began treating these guys, and uh, they limited it at the time just for men, and uh, because that was the biggest problem, and they had to pick a place, and uh, they didn't have infinite resources, and uh, uh, so the average a uh, man would come and stay uh, somewhere between 20 and 28 days getting well. And during that time, they would either get off their drugs or they'd get on their meds and they'd start getting their head right. And they were exposed to people who were praying with them constantly. And many of them turned their lives over to Christ. And, and a lot of them wanted to go ahead and just like reset their lives and get on, get on with life and, and, and get off the street but they were having to turn them back onto the street because there was nothing for them. And they realized a bigger need. And so they ended up buying the rest of the building and turning the top two floors into a dorm that would be a semi-permanent 
housing option for some of these men who didn't have other options. Um, and as they were as they were kitting it out, she and um, and her husband Alan uh, were dialoguing about the passage where Jesus, the story of the Good Samaritan, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And they asked, "What does that really mean?" And they asked the hard questions. Uh, does it mean that we just feel warmly towards these people? What does it mean practically? And and they decided that it meant that they would want nothing less for these men and their neighbors uh, than they would want for their own families. And so they rethought about how they were setting up Christ House, the, the Christ House dorms, and they decided to put in some extra uh, uh, walls and uh, a little more privacy, a few extra bathrooms, and and made it a lot better. It was so much better than the big open dorms with just you know hundreds of beds down a hallway. Um, but even then, they began to ask, you know, how are we going to? Is that still what we would want for our own family? And so they made the decision that the only way that they could be sure would be if they moved into Christ House themselves. And so Alan and Janelle Getchis and their three children moved into Christ House on Christmas Eve, 1985. And they continue, they've continued to live in Christ House as the homeless men do uh, since 1985. She raised her entire, her family there. Her kids are walking with the Lord, doing work with the homeless. One of them's a physician. Uh, Janelle went on to, uh, to help found Unity Health Care, which is one of the largest federally qualified health systems in the country. I know a few years ago they did 675,000 patient visits a year. And this is a very humble, quiet woman. And uh, she was the CMO there. Um, uh, she had somebody else do the uh, CEO bit, and she became the CMO. And she only retired within the last year. And she's retired, again, living in Christ House so that she can give her time full time to the men at Christ House and continues to do that. And so here's an example of domestic missions with really what I would call extreme incarnational approach. I mean, to live with her family there among these men and then addressing systemic, you know, systemic advocacy, uh, helping the powers that be in her city understand that housing is health for these men and advocating for them. She's had presidents and presidents' wives and secretaries of health and human services, multiples, come and visit her at Christ House. And she hasn't sought that level of input, but she's been available for it. And so it's a great example. Um, another great example of a great domestic uh, mission is uh, Jericho Road in Buffalo, New York. And Myron Glick actually is doing a workshop at GMHC this year. And I encourage you to, uh, to listen to his workshop. And he'll tell his story you know, more completely. But he started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, and struggled. Jericho Road was a real struggle. He wanted to serve the poor um, in Buffalo. And, uh, and then 9-11 hit. And when 9-11 hit, uh, the refugee situation in New York City came to light nationally, and there was all kinds of misinformation and, uh, and xenophobia that, that happened about uh, Queens, about, about the amount of refugees and foreigners that were resettling in Queens. And so the state of New York, New York City is still the largest port of entry for refugees in the country, and the state of New York decided Let's not resettle people in, the, in Queens anymore. Let's resettle them in Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo had like 60% of their land mass was brown space. Uh, it had been a city of a million and a half, and it was down to under 400,000 people. And so, um, you know, property values were cheaper, and they wouldn't complain as loudly, and they'd sort of be out of sight if we sent them to Buffalo. And so suddenly Buffalo was flooded with refugees, and... Even the Christian, most of the doctors didn't want to see the refugees. Even the Christian doctors were hesitant to see refugees. Um, not all of them. There were, there were exceptions to this. But Myron threw his doors open. He said, look, we're called to welcome the stranger. Come and we'll, we'll take care of you here. And 
Um, he took a contract with the state to do uh, 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 entry screening for families that were coming in. A lot of them had uh, chronic health problems. Uh, he, he decided they, you know, it was his job to help them navigate the healthcare system, to advocate for them. And about seven, I think 65 to 70% of his practice is built around uh, refugee populations. They have four sites, I think now, and uh, in Buffalo, and all of them are focused predominantly on, um, on refugees, although they also serve a lot of other people that are not refugees. But um, a few years ago, uh, we were talking about the Acts 1-8 thing and about the, the and part of Acts 1-8. And uh, he went back to his staff and he said, uh, look, I do think uh, it's always, I've always had global missions on my, on my heart. He was raised as a missionary kid in Belize. And, um, and, he, and he, he said, I don't want to just throw a dart at a map and say, okay, we're going to go there. But here's what we'll do. If we have patients who have been blessed by Jericho Road, maybe they've come to the Lord, and they want to go back to their home country, and they want to see this type of ministry happening there, we'll follow them. We'll let them lead us, and we'll support them. We'll empower them. And, uh, and honestly, he told me, he confided in me and said, honestly, I thought it was a pretty safe bet because what refugee wants to ever go back to their home country? I mean, they literally hit the lottery to get here. Um, to his surprise, his nurse, who had lived through atrocities in Sierra Leone, came to him and said, I swore I'd never go back to Africa, but when you said this, my heart burned within me that there's no place like Jericho Road in the entire district uh, that I grew up in in Sierra Leone, and I want to go back. And so uh, Phoebean, he'll talk about this in his workshop, but uh, Phoebean took them back to Sierra Leone, and they started, a. Uh, there's pictures here, Jericho Road Ministries there, and um, uh, they opened in 2015, the month that the Ebola crisis hit. The government came to them and they said, listen, we need you to not see Ebola patients. All the Ebola patients are going to other clinics in other parts of the country. And because they're doing that, no one else will go. People with malaria and people with other, with labor issues and things like that won't go to the doctor because they're afraid that Ebola is there. We need your clinic to be a clean clinic. And in their first year, they picked up 20,000 unique patients. Um, and they have grown. They now have three sites in Sierra Leone. When he came back, word spread and a group of Congolese people came to him and said, we want to do this in Congo, in the DRC. They now have at least two, maybe three sites in the DRC. They had a, uh, a little man from Bhutan who um, was a refugee in a Nepalese refugee camp. He ended up in Buffalo. Uh, that He came to Christ. He's now led, this little humble man has led 400 other Nepalese and Bhutanese people to Christ. And he's uh, talked to Myron and said, I want to go back and I want to start a clinic in Nepal. I won't go into the details there because they are uh, ministering. They have two sites now in that country that are ministering to a population that is uh, one of the most closed, uh, restricted access countries in the world. And, um, and they're seeing hundreds of people turn to Christ through all of that. And so... Again, here's a great opportunity to see uh, really the integration of domestic and overseas missions, both in the U.S. and in other countries. Right now, they're in three other countries, and my understanding is they're on deck to move into another West African country. Um, there's others. I won't go into these stories, but look these guys up. Ethne Health in Clarkston, Georgia, a group of uh, medical students and residents that trained in Memphis learned how to be good neighbors and how to walk out uh, being a medical disciple in Memphis, got together, began to pray, ended up uh, deciding to go to Clarkston, Georgia, which is the second largest refugee resettlement area in the United States and the most diverse area in the United States because of uh, refugee resettlement. And two years ago, they opened their clinic, Ethne Health. Um, Lower Lights is a, is a wonderful story about a uh, Nazarene pastor and his wife, who was a physician, who moved into Franklinton, uh, which is a community on the west side of, of Columbus, and they opened a clinic in the early 2000s. And 
And it was just as the opioid crisis was beginning to take root. And Columbus, Ohio is ground zero for the opioid crisis in America. And Franklinton is ground zero in Columbus for that. I have never, ever been in a neighborhood where I have seen the level of brokenness, the number of heroin addicts and prostitution and all that kind of stuff. And this couple moved into that community. The pastor, uh, Dana, Dana Valangian, is the is the physician and her husband Mike was the pastor of the church in the area, and um, and they just began to to minister to these broken, broken, broken people and to integrate so much of the work that they do and uh, it's just a tremendous ministry. They now have they now have I think four or five sites in and around Columbus, uh, and one of the areas one of the things that happened is as as heroin decimated that community. Businesses closed and grocery stores moved out and it was no longer safe for people to go places and things and it became a food desert as a result. And so um, one of the things that they did is they've opened a nonprofit grocery store and cafe in the health center and they write prescriptions for vegetables and, and things and, and anyway, they're, it's beyond medicine for them. They understand they're part of a global mission. So incarnational, marginal, working with the marginalized, advocacy, going beyond medicine, replication, all of these are the ways that they're walking out, uh, all of these things. So um, around the country, there are a number of places where we're seeing intentional medical communities living incarnationally. In other words, a, a group of medical disciples moving into under-resourced communities to live and church and minister and love these broken communities. And, uh, and so there's a number of those around that you can come back and look at some of these. Please contact me and I can give you more information about this. So um, how people are, how other, other ways people are walking this out. I've mentioned work with refugee populations. Every major city in America now has large populations of culturally isolated refugee, asylee, and immigrant populations. And this is a wide open mission field. And we are commanded to love and care for these people. So I've mentioned Jericho Road and Ethne Health. There's others around the country. Uh, Salome in Nashville does a really great job of this. And there's a number of other groups as well. Um, Training programs. There are organizations. We have an organization in Augusta, Georgia, that has um, that sends teams of people to China to teach in medical schools and residency programs over there every year. In His Image does the same kind of thing around the country, around the world, in a number of different countries, uh, and they're they're sharing spiritual care strategies, and and it opens the door for them with science and medicine behind them to share the gospel with doctors and with residents in these countries around the, uh, around the world. And so this is another good way. Another thing that's happened is um, what we jokingly call missionary farms. There are a number of clinics around the country, Christian clinics around the country, that have determined that that's what they want to be. They want to be a missionary farm. We want to train the next generation to go to restricted access places or, or dark areas in, uh, in our own nation and to live missionally and, mi and minister missionally. So I think about Cahaba and Birmingham and Memphis. It started in Memphis and, and things are happening there. Via Christi in Wichita, Kansas. There's a group in um, Detroit. There's residency programs now that are starting in, on the west side of Chicago at Lawndale um, with Jericho Road in Buffalo. Uh, certainly uh, some other places around the country that are intentionally preparing people to um, uh, really to think and live missionally and adopt a missional paradigm for medicine. And then finally, there's a number of organizations, quite a few organizations now, that as they grow and they get their feet under them domestically, they begin to think we really need to invest in overseas groups, in overseas missions as well. And so how can we do that? Oh, many of them have adopted uh, unreached people groups or nations. Uh, there's a number of them that have adopted uh, uh, nations in Central, Af uh, Central Asia. 
uh, in the Horn of Africa and North Africa, quite a few uh, in China and India, and, um, uh, and, and even uh, one or two that have adopted very close restricted access countries on the Korean Peninsula. So organizations are, the, the interesting thing is organizations here in the States that are doing this are finding that they're attracting the right kind of providers, that they have a le- less of a resource problem than they did before they did this. God's sending them resources uh, and that the culture of their organizations are cleaner and more Christ-centered because of their engagement with global missions. So I'm going to stop there. I've gone a little bit over my time, but uh, I just want to end by just encouraging you, don't do missions. Be a missionary. And hopefully we've got a few minutes for some more questions. So thank you very much.